please join me in a word of prayer. Father, I'm struck by the words of that psalm. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And Lord, considering the gospel message, I ask that you would walk behind us, come up alongside us, and open the scriptures to our understanding. Help me now, Lord, as I share this message, for I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're in a series in these weeks uh, after Easter Sunday, the Easter season, and I've called it, I Have Seen the Lord. And I'm borrowing that language from Mary Magdalene, who actually said that after the resurrection. And we'll be looking at the witness of the early church, both some of the resurrection accounts, as well as some of the teaching uh, that the church gave, and even some of the teachings of Jesus about what it looks like to walk in the land of the living, both the living Lord and being alive in Him. Now, this morning, I've got one of the most well-loved stories of Scripture, this passage on the road to Emmaus. And right away, we have a problem. And the problem is that it looks like fiction. Listen to what uh, Bishop N.T. Wright said about this. He said, at the level of drama, it has everything. Sorrow, suspense, puzzlement, gradual dawning of light. Then in the second half, unexpected actions, astonished recognition, a flurry of excitement and activity. It is both a wonderful, unique, spellbinding tale and also a model for a great deal of what being a Christian from this day, from that day to this day is all about. And he's right. It's an incredible tale. The problem is even using the word tale makes you think this is fiction. This is a made-up story. This is, this is good reading. This is a sit-by-the-poolside novel. I was leading a men's group that I've been doing uh, early on Friday mornings on Zoom, and we looked at this passage on Friday, and as I set it up, I referred to it as a story, and I immediately caught myself, and I said, I want to say account, because it is a story, but it's also an account. I think this actually literally happened, and Luke poetically tells it well. So I feel like as we dig into this story, I've got to deal with that problem a little bit. So just as a mental map of where I'm going to go in this message, I'm going, to, I'm going to first validate the story as an account, and then I'm going to evaluate the account in terms of the content of it, and then I'm going to invite you to meditate on it and use it as a tool for reflection. So validate, evaluate, and meditate. So let me start with Cleopas, or maybe Clopas. You know, his name might have been Clopas. Mary, one of the Marys at the cross, was the wife of Clopas. And here it says Cleopas. Uh, It could be a nickname. I think this is really important that there's an actual name in here. This is Luke's way of saying, this is my reference, my footnote. Many of you know Cleopas and know Mary, his wife, if that's the same Cleopas, Cleopas and Clopas. This was not a made-up story. You could actually go and ask Cleopas about this when Luke was writing, or you could ask someone who knew him or knew the account. This is not just a made-up story. It's kind of like in Luke's gospel, or excuse me, in Mark's gospel, where Simon that comes in from the field and is forced to carry the cross, he mentions this is the same Simon whose sons we know. Their names are Alexander and Rufus. They do it as a way of inserting a footnote into the story. And consider the way that Luke's gospel starts. Luke, the physician, very orderly mind, in his his very beginning of of his gospel, Luke chapter 1, 
uh, is writing to a benefactor, and he says this, and as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, we hear narrative and we think fiction, at least I do. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, he's clarifying, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke is giving us an account of what happened here. And furthermore, if this was fiction, would you really make the protagonists, the apostles, look like such fools, blundering idiots? They're walking along talking about this, and Jesus even rebukes them as being foolish. I mean, they're walking along, and they start explaining to him what has happened, and they say, even some of our women went to the tomb and found it empty, and then started talking about seeing angels. You can almost imagine them rolling their eyes for disbelief. They don't believe women. Furthermore, if you made the story up, I know I've said this before and others have as well, would you make a woman the first person to see the resurrected Christ? In that day, there was such discrimination against the gender that women didn't have a voice in court. Their witness was discredited. So would you do that? Well, you would if it actually happened, which I'm maintaining that it did. Now, the Emmaus story or account is only in Luke's gospel. Of the four gospel writings, only Luke picks this up. And Luke, the physician, Dr. Luke, is always concerned with the human condition. He is interested in people and their hearts and their challenges. And so he is describing here for us the way that they go from disbelief to belief, the way that they struggle, like we struggle today. So I now want to evaluate the text a bit. And let's, let's look at verse 15. Um, in verse 15, it says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. I actually like the word in the Greek that they use for discussing because it's a little bit stronger than discussing. It's vigorous discussion or maybe even debating. I think going to the word argue is probably a little too far, uh, looking that word up in the dictionary, but it's more than just talking. They were wrestling with what had happened. They were going back and forth. I, I always appreciate when I'm in a Bible study with somebody and the conversation gets lively like that. I mean, that's what the Alpha Course is meant to do, to actually challenge the faith, to ask the hard questions, to wrestle with it. They were wrestling with the events that had happened because they, they, their minds were being blown. In verse 16, it says their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus when he pulls up alongside them. Maybe that's because his body had changed some in the resurrection. Maybe that's because their hearts were still caught up on his death. I went into um, Publix last week, I guess it was, and I was washing my hands in the restroom, and I did not have a mask on, but a boy came in who did have a mask on, and I thought I recognized him. And I got to tell you, my heart was inclined to want to recognize him because of this separation we're in. As an extrovert, I'm constantly like, where are people? I don't like this isolation thing. And so I'm looking at him thinking, do I know that kid? Do I know him? And I came out of the bathroom and, and his mom was waiting for him. And I'm looking at her. It was probably awkward for her because I was like, do I know you? And she didn't wave. So I, I don't know. I thought, I, I thought it was a church member, but I'm not sure. But this, in a similar way, um, I wanted to recognize them and their appearance was changed because of the masks. 
These guys were predisposed to think he couldn't have been resurrected because his death was so bad. It was so violent. And his body was probably changed in some way. Yes, it was Jesus. And once they did recognize him, it looked like Jesus, but something was different about him. And so they didn't see him. But there's also a mystery in the scriptures. It says their eyes were kept from recognizing. Uh, that's in verse 16. And that's a, that's a, a thing that has happened before in in Luke's telling. In chapter 9, there are two accounts where Jesus foretells his death to them. And let me read one of them to you. It says, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him anything about this saying. Three times in Luke's gospel, he foretells of his death. Um, I'll give you the verses if you want to look it up. 921, 945, and then 1831. It says this in 18. And taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. There's a real mystery here in how a person comes to understand the Scriptures, but I think it's fair to say you should pray for God to open your heart to understand His Word. They didn't understand. Their eyes were kept from recognizing. Even as he talked about what would happen, they had heard, the words sunk into their ears because they say in this account, and what's more, it's the third day. Now, Luke here doesn't tell us why that's significant, but the reason is because Jesus said, on the third day, I will be raised. And it was the third day, and the women had gone to the tomb, and some of the disciples went, and they all found the tomb empty, and the women had seen angels, and they were dealing with all of this. I've told you before of my own experience of God's Word making sense to me. I was, uh, it was after my junior year in high school. I, I'd, I'd grown up in a Christian home. I'd been to a Christian school for most of my education. We read the Bible and religion class. For whatever reason, in that youth group, after my junior year in high school, all of a sudden it made sense. I was like, oh, so God loves me, and I'm a sinner, and He sent His Son to die for my sins, and if I repent and believe in him, I can be saved and have a relationship with him. Yeah, that makes sense. All of a sudden, the whole scriptures were, were starting to come together for me. I don't know why then. I don't know why in that year. But I can tell you I'm grateful that the Lord opened my heart and my mind to understand his truth. Pray for him to do the same for you if you don't get it. Now, Jesus comes up and says, you know, what things are you talking about? Tell me about it. And we, what we get is basically the gospel according to Cleopas, starting in verse 19. He says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and at all the people, and how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And yes, and all this, it's the third day and, and so forth. He was so close, like he almost has it right. He's got this idea, we had hoped that he was the one 
to redeem Israel, but he got crucified. If you slightly change it, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel through being crucified. That was the way that Christ was going to accomplish his mission. And then Jesus begins to open their minds, taking them through the scriptures, beginning with Moses and going all the way through. And they come to the end in verse 32, and they say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? You know, it's, it's a famous account of the conversion of John Wesley, um, the Anglican priest who started what is now called the Methodist Church. But And I've shared this with you before, but I think it's helpful to hear his testimony because so many people have had a similar experience. He wrote this in his journal. This was written, by the way, in May 24th, 1738. In the evening, I went very unwillingly. Ever been dragged to church? I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. Talk about an exciting meeting right there. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Uh, I pulled that out of a commentary, and the commentary commentator says, it was William Holland who was reading Martin Luther's commentary on Paul's epistle explaining Jesus's ministry. It's third hand. And even through that, God was able to reach John Wesley's heart and warm his heart. And he came alive in faith and believed. And he believed in the good news right there. That and other accounts like that tell me that even preaching to you through the computer is powerful enough. If third-hand reading an explanation of Jesus' ministry can bring somebody to faith, then God can use almost anything. Now, in verse 27, it says that in all the Scripture, he taught them the things concerning himself, beginning with Moses and the prophets. So this book, this isn't, this isn't the, the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible. The whole thing is Christian Scripture. The Old Covenant is all about Christ. It is fulfilled in him. It is pointing to him. And Jesus gave them a lesson in biblical theology, beginning with Moses, who we assume wrote Genesis and the first five books. Beginning with the the very first part of Scripture, he explained to them how it was all concerning himself. I I took um, a preaching class a couple of years ago up at Gordon-Conwell, and my professor that week, a guy named Brian Chappell, was the editor of a study Bible. Um, I commend it to you. It's actually really good. It's called the Gospel Transformation Bible, and unlike other study Bibles, it's not trying to give technical footnotes about what you're reading. Its goal is to show you Christ in all of Scripture. So you read through whatever passage you're in, and there are footnotes at the bottom that help you see how it is fulfilled in Christ, the whole Scripture. And in the introduction to that, he cautions people against stretching too far and making bad allegorical interpretations. Like, people say things like, well, Noah's ark was made of wood, and Noah and his family were saved through the ark. The cross was made of wood, and we're saved through the cross. Therefore, it's all about Jesus. Okay, but, you know, you can, you can twist that and say, 
Yeah, but their fishing boats were made of wood, and they left those behind and followed Jesus. So you can, you know, that's bad biblical interpretation. But what he does actually, what my professor did in the introduction to that, is he said, we look for how it predicts, prepares, reflects, or results of Christ's work. So it predicts. Isaiah 9, 6. And maybe Jesus went here. I'm not sure. We read Isaiah 9 every Christmas time. For unto us a child is born. And it goes on. It talks about a a wonderful counselor, a prince of peace. On his shoulder will be the government. He will be on the throne of David, and his reign will be forever. It's predicting what was to come. Or it prepares us in some way. Like take Exodus 12, the Passover feast. As the angel of death passed over the Israelite homes who had slaughtered that lamb when the exodus out of Egypt was happening, it was preparing us for how Christ would be the perfect Passover lamb, sacrificed for our sin, and death would pass over us, and we would have life in Him. Or it reflects the nature of God, in particular the nature of a God who is a redeemer, and the nature of man who needs to be redeemed. So consider the very beginning in in Genesis 3. Right after sin enters in, God goes walking. God, the God who redeems, it's, it's reflecting his nature, goes walking towards Adam and Eve. And he says, where are you? And he's, Adam says, he's hiding. Why are you hiding? Because I'm naked. Well, who said you were naked? Did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat of? What we've got here is we have a God who is saying, where are you? Pursuing sinners. And we have broken people who are hiding. We're afraid of God. We're hiding from him because we know we've done wrong. And the scriptures show that. It shows the nature of a God who goes seeking the nature of a God who redeems, the nature of God who fixes. Not long after that, God actually kills an animal, death enters in, talking about predictions and preparation, kills an animal and takes the skins and makes clothing for Adam and Eve. He clothes them in their sin. This is reflecting something about how God is. He's gracious and merciful as well as just, and the nature of man who needs a Savior to come and clothe us and help us and forgive us. And it results, it shows us the results of God's work in Christ. You know, you have to understand that grace always precedes law. And so, the, the first gospel message is, the serpent will strike at your heel and you will crush his head. And we see in Exodus, when on Mount Sinai, the law is given, it's after God has already brought them out of Egypt. He saved them out of slavery, brought them to Mount Sinai, and then gave them the law. This is the results of Christ's work. He first saves us and then invites us to to change and be transformed in him. It's not, here are the Ten Commandments. If you abide by these, then I will deliver you out of slavery. Grace comes first. Then he teaches us how to live with him. On the journey retreat, which is our uh, students' confirmation preparation weekend, we've been using for the last uh, several years um, a really brilliant tool called Casket Empty. Uh, A woman uh, named Carol Kaminsky put together a brilliant acronym, Casket Empty. All of those words, uh, all those letters of those two words, it gives you a way to situate the scriptures as you're going through from Genesis to Revelation. And I have the letters here, but I'll see if I can get it from memory. I have casket empty. C is for creation. God creates. A is for Abraham. He chooses a people. 
Uh, S, Mount Sinai, he gives the law. K is for the kings, the monarchy. E is for exile into Babylon. Um, T is for the second temple when they come back. E is for uh, the, the expectation of more, of the Messiah, all the way up to John the Baptist. M is for the Messiah coming. P is for Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. T is for the teachings of the church, the epistles. And Y is for yet to come. Talking about revelation and Christ's return. And brilliantly, that spells out casket empty. That whole story, as Jesus showed these disciples on the road to Emmaus, is about him and it's about the resurrection and what Christ has accomplished. Now, of course, they didn't use a casket, but you get the idea. Now, in verse 26, it's summarized and says in a rhetorical question, it is necessary that the cross would happen and enter into his glory. He's not going to get to his glory apart from the cross. That was how God planned it. He would go through the cross into his glory. Now, okay, so, so I said that my outline today is to validate this as an account, to evaluate the content of it and talk through that, and then to meditate. Use it as a tool for meditation. One of our values as a church is to have a personal walk with the Lord. Um, on our website is a little document, we can show it on the screen, that lists out our core values. And I've zoomed in here on the one with the two boot prints. A personal walk with the Lord is a key value of our church. In the subtitle, you probably can't read it, but it says, we pursue a relationship with the living God. This is about walking with God who is alive. A core value of ours is to cultivate an awareness of his presence and a relationship with him. I think you should really pray, God, open my heart to your reality here, sitting on your couch, cup of coffee in your hand, Sunday morning, weird church, Facebook. He's present Lord, help me be mindful of that. We're doing with our staff a little video series called Godspeed. A priest named Matt Canlis put it together when he was encouraged by Eugene Peterson to go to a little town in Scotland called Methlick. And he goes out into the parish to knock on doors and meet people. And in one of the houses, a man comes out, tall, six foot something, big red beard, kilt, thick Scottish accent, and invites him in for tea. And he's not a believer yet. And Matt tries to tell him about Jesus. And this man says, let me see a map. You know, the Bible has a map in the back. So they turn to it. And he realizes that the size of the little villages around the Sea of Galilee in Palestine are about the size of Methlech. And he says, Jesus walked in his ministry in that place. And he realized there's no way to do that ministry without being fully known. Jesus didn't just drive in in his car, pull off some kind of, you know, show a magic trick and get in his car and drive away. He walked with those people. He was known by them and they were known by him. Just like on the road to Emmaus, he sees their slowness of heart. He sees everything about them and they come to realize that Jesus is alive. He's real. The same thing happened uh, to this man in the Godspeed DVD. I want to encourage you to take this story, this account, and use it as a tool for meditation. You have a problem right now? Go for a walk with Cleopas. God's speed is about three miles per hour. And share your challenge with the stranger who draws alongside you. Christ who is real. Welcome his input to speak into your problem. Listen to his voice. Invite him to speak. Ask him to warm your heart to his presence. To warm your mind to the truth of scripture. The question was asked by God of Adam and Eve, where are you? And the answer was hiding. 
By choosing to walk with God, you're opening yourself up to him. We want and need Jesus to walk with us, especially in these times. He's offering a personal relationship. The tomb was empty. He is actually resurrected. And the thing he did on the road to Emmaus, the thing that he did for the Scottish man in the kilt, the thing that he did for John Wesley and for me, he still does today. Invite him. Invite him to come and walk with you, to search you, to help find you in your lost state. He still does that. And I want to pray as our team comes back up here and ask the Lord to open your heart to his presence. Lord, I'm so grateful for this account and for your servant, Luke, who wrote it down for us. I thank you for the, the fun I find. Just, Jesus, you're fun. You're smart. You're God. You came alongside them. You challenged them. In the mystery of your work, their eyes were kept from seeing you until in the breaking of bread, you revealed yourself. Lord, I pray this morning for each one hearing me that we would boldly ask you to open our minds to understand Scripture and to warm our hearts to your reality. Increase our faith, Lord, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's now.